Hello, this is Wendy Creekles. Um, welcome, I would like to welcome you to the monthly podcast of the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Neurology Section of the American Physical Therapy Association. Our topic today is pharmacology and vestibular disorders. I will be your hostess. I am Wendy Creekles. Um, I am a physical therapist and a neurologic clinical specialist, and I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado, Denver. And we have with us today Dr. Timothy Hain from Chicago. And Dr. Hain, you can give your um, introduction. Hi, Wendy. I'm a uh, neurologist, and I'm a professor of otolaryngology and physical therapy at Northwestern University here in Chicago. I spend most of my time in uh, private practice uh, at a practice called Chicago Disease and, and Hearing, and uh, mainly see dizzy patients and some patients with uh, hearing disorders. Uh, when I tell patients what I do, I say, I'm, I'm a dizzy doctor. And so I think that kind of sums it all up. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're um, very honored that you will give us some of your expertise today. So um, today's format will be some questions and answers. We're going to start with a question regarding um, some of the different otologic causes of vertigo. Um, we'll start with one of the most common um, disorders that we treat, BPPV. So, Dr. Hain, do you feel it's appropriate to treat individuals with BPPV with meclizine or another vestibular suppressant? Um, well, the, uh, sort of the short answer is uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, uh, you know, there are... Uh, as you said, BPPV is, is very common in, in my own practice. I probably I see a, a new patient at least once a day, sometimes three or four a day. And uh, usually uh, you know, the best treatment for BPPV is physical therapy. And, and so if you can treat them right on the spot or if you can arrange for them to have uh, the appropriate maneuver, that's by far the best way to manage them. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are sometimes situations, though, when, when meclizine comes in pretty handy, and um, one is is, um, is when the person is um, unwilling to treat themselves or to do the self self uh, epley, for example, or they're un, unwilling to come in for uh, their therapy visits because they're afraid it'll make them so dizzy, and so you might give them meclizine uh, half an hour prior to their uh, their attempted treatment. And another time is when people just have trouble sleeping and when they roll over in bed at night and then they, they get dizzy and then they start to um, be sleepless because they're so dizzy. And and so I, I will sometimes have them take meclizine for a few weeks while they're in the process of getting uh, physical therapy for their, their BPPV. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the individuals certainly that come to physical therapy um, and perhaps in your practice as well, actually have acute onset of dizziness. They go to the emergency department, and they are given meclizine, and they're sent kind of on their merry way for a while um, with that suppressant. What what are the potential risks of being on that vestibular suppressant for a long period of time when it is something as simple as BPPV? Well, there's, there's a quite a few reasons not to do that. Um, one is, is that these, these medicines have um, quite significant side effects, and uh, of which uh, sedation is, is the most important one with, with meclizine. And, 
So a patient who goes to the emergency room, they have BPPV and they're sent home with, uh, say, meclizine 25 milligrams twice a day, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're tired from the meclizine and they might have a dry mouth and uh, dry eyes from the anticholinergic effects of the meclizine and they're sleeping and they're gaining weight from the mm-hmm. antihistamine part of the meclizine, but they're not doing anything about their core condition, which is the BPPV. Mm-hmm. And so in, in someone like that, I would usually take them right off their meclizine and say, you need to have exercises, not uh, be taking this medicine. And so I'll, that kind of patient, I would usually take them off their meclizine. Uh, mm-hmm. Another group of patients might be someone who goes to the emergency room. They have vestibular neuritis and BPPV at the same time. And uh, those people, uh, the meclizine can be useful for a few days. And so it's uh, makes them a little more comfortable. They're not going back to work anyway, so it's okay if they're sleeping all day long, and at least they're not vomiting. And mm-hmm. so it gives them a, some time for their uh, their acute vestibular neuritis to resolve, and then after two or three days, then you take them off and you proceed on with plan A, which is to treat them with physical therapy or give them time to recover and be active and not sedate them. Mm-hmm. The uh, me- meclizine, of course, is just one of several um, emergency room vestibular suppressants. Right. And I'd say the other one that, uh, that that people often come home with, at least in Chicago, is on Valium or, or some Valium-like medicine such as uh, lorazepam. Right. And uh, those medicines, I think, are, uh, are best. Uh, they don't have quite as many side effects as meclizine, but they're addictive. And so uh, I'll, I'll usually, you know, wag my finger at the patient and say, well, you realize this is an addictive medication and it's not good for you to be on this, and I really think you should try to get off it as soon as you can. The uh, the medicine that I'm perfectly happy with the emergency room to send them home with is uh, an anti-nausea medicine such as Ondansetron because the uh, Ondansetron, or used to be, you know, the brand name is Zofran, uh, Ondansetron is, uh, just doesn't seem to uh, have much in the way of side effects, and by making them... Uh, Less nauseated, it uh, allows them to patients to be more active and and sometimes make more progress towards getting back to uh, their life again. Hmm. And with meclizine, you mentioned you would take the individual right off the meclizine with the drugs such as Valium or lorazepam. Do you need to be more careful about weaning an individual from those, or is it okay to go sort of cold turkey? with those medications if they came to you right from an emergency room and maybe weren't optimally treated? Well, it, it, uh, there it depends very much on how long they've been on their, their medication. With with meclizine, you can usually just cold turkey and there's really no major problem at all. The uh, With a, uh, with the benzodiazepine family, such as uh, Valium, diazepam itself, or um, clonazepam, uh, clonopin, or um, lorazepam, ativan, once people have been on those medicines for about a week, they, they may start to, to have some trouble with withdrawal if you were to, to stop them suddenly. And so um, usually sort of a rule of thumb, I'll, I'll bring them off slowly and I'll, um, I'll have them cut down their dose in half every week and, until they're down to mm. almost nothing. The, um, it, in, in order to sort of explain to, to patients about um, you know, how much of these drugs are they taking in, in terms of... Uh, Garden variety substances that that people <laughs> use. The uh, I, I use what I call the beer scale, and so I, I'll <laughs> say, well, a uh, one beer or I guess a glass of Chardonnay, if you prefer, <laughs> is uh, 
is equivalent to uh, about a half milligram of uh, either lorazepam or clonazepam, and it's equivalent to about two milligrams of Valium. And so when, when someone comes home on um, you know, two milligrams of Valium or five broken up into two 2.5 doses, then I'll say, well, that's about like drinking two beers a day, and um, that's going to make you kind of groggy, and uh, I think you should you know, kind of cut down slowly. Mm -hmm. If someone gets sent home from the emergency room on 10 milligrams of Valium, then I say, oh, my, that's a lot of Valium. Mm -hmm. you, you need to get off that in a hurry because it's going to make you into a uh, very different person. Mm -hmm. um, you brought up just briefly in that question vestibular neuritis, and can you just give us a, a brief um, overview of the difference between vestibular neuritis and labyrinthitis and how the treatments for those are different? Well, the um, so vestibularitis and labyrinthitis both share a um, a uh, subacute um, dizziness. By that, I, I mean that uh, the dizziness lasts for uh, typically for weeks. It's, it's not uh, minutes such as it is in uh, BPPD or uh, or TIAs or years like it is in ototoxicity, but rather it's uh, a typical duration of of symptoms severe enough to keep one from working with either vestibular neuritis or, or labyrinthitis is about two weeks. And so uh, people, uh, you know, often just develop uh, severe dizziness over uh, two or three hours in both cases. And the only real difference between labyrinthitis and vestibular neuritis has to do with whether they have any hearing complaints or not. And it's, it's purely just a... Um, a term that's used, and so if, if they have tinnitus or hearing loss plus the dizziness, then then the uh, the label applied is labyrinthitis. And if they mm -hmm. have just a pure dizziness without any hearing symptoms at all, then the the uh, the quote unquote diagnosis is uh, vestibular neuritis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, probably in both cases we're dealing with the same underlying disorder, which right now the the prevalent opinion is that we're dealing with a viral inflammation of the uh, the eighth nerve and in vestibular neuritis it's purely the vestibular part and in uh, labyrinthitis it's the cochlear vestibular nerve or, or a bigger portion of the nerve mm -hmm. um, they're they're treated um, these days the uh, the the current treatment um, is um, the, the change in the treatment has been to add steroids to the regime and so now uh, People are treated with for vestibular neuritis in a similar way that Bell's palsy is treated with a uh, a short course of steroids and then medicines to just to take care of their their symptoms such as uh, meclizine or ondansetron for uh, nausea and to suppress some of the, the spinning. Mm -hmm. And so is, has it is there ever um, an indication for antibiotics or is it mostly felt that this is a viral trigger and that it's relatively rare to have a bacterial trigger? The, um, the only situation in which I think you would ever use antibiotics would be as if there is good evidence for a middle ear infection. Mm -hmm. and so, uh, for example, if one had uh, a perforation in the eardrum or a draining ear or a very painful ear, then one might uh, give the person the antibiotics uh, with the thought that they might have uh, an infection in the middle ear and some uh, impingement on the inner ear due to 
transmission of uh, infla mm. inflammatory mediators from across the round window into the uh, into the inner ear. That is is a much less common uh, scenario than this. Uh, at least in adults, just the uh, occurrence of uh, someone who doesn't have any ear pain, but rather has a painless um, vertigo, sometimes accompanied by a hearing hearing loss. Right. Okay. And um, let's talk about Meniere's disease for a minute, or even the the larger family of endolymphatic high drops. Um, what is the current thinking behind the treatment for both acute episodes and for sort of ongoing management? Well, Meniere's is a uh, is a uncommon condition. About one in two thousand people in the population. Uh, according to the Mayo Clinic study, have many ears disease, and it's uh, characterized by uh, four cardinal symptoms, uh, episodic vertigo, hearing loss, uh, one-ear fullness, monaural fullness, and uh, monaural tinnitus. And so sort of the, the typical patient with, with many ears will someone who has a, um, a hissing-type tinnitus, and then they develop a uh, plugged feeling in one ear, and then a day or two later, they develop a, a sudden onset of vertigo and a drop in their hearing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have uh, the vertigo lasts, uh, it's most severe for about two hours, but they still feel uh, out of sorts usually for about a couple of days, and then they're they're back to go back to their usual, ready to go back to the usual activities after about two days. So the uh, the, the central dogma concerning many years, which is uh, is a little bit under attack is that Meniere's disease is is caused by um, too high pressure in the endolymphatic compartment of the inner ear, and so it's caused by endolymphatic high drops. As I said, this is a little bit under attack, and there's lots of reasons you could bring up to say, well, that doesn't really make that much sense, but still, it's it's the best explanation. Mm -hmm. And um, so the uh, the treatment is is. Uh, is fairly unsatisfactory, and the um, so we have this group of people who are sort of out of the blue, developing uh, dizzy spells, and they're they're gradually going deaf in one ear. And over 30 years, uh, nearly always th that ear will will become unusable. That's a very long time, of course, but uh, they gradually lose hearing uh, in in one ear, and and half the time it spreads to the other ear. So we have this group of people with this this sort of chronic. Um, inner ear disease, which never really goes away, and our medical management is, is pretty bad. And um, usually, uh, uh, conventionally, um, people are started on uh, salt restriction, and, the, uh, and so the usual dietary suggestion is uh, less than two grams of sodium per day, and if you can, get down to one and a half grams of sodium per day. So that's not very much sodium, mm -hmm. and um, it, uh, there there are uh, a, perhaps one out of three uh, patients with Meniere's disease who will say, well, this really is great, and as long as I keep up with this, I'm fine. And um, so one out of three, roughly, you get picked off with this um, salt restriction. For, for the people who either the salt restriction doesn't work or the... Uh, or they just won't salt restrict, then uh, then the next step is usually a, a diuretic. And the uh, 
sort of the industry standard diuretic in the United States is one called uh, Diazide, is the brand name, or uh, Triamterine HCTV. Mm -hmm. uh, Triamterine is a uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitor type diuretic, and HCTV is a thiazide. And one of them increases potassium, the other one decreases potassium. So you put the two together and you end up with one that's kind of potassium neutral. So th this is a favored um, prescription because you don't have to give them two things, you just have to give them one pill, which is this triamterine HCTZ. And um, so for the people who fail the salt restriction, then you move on to the, um, the triamterine HCTZ. And, and I'd say again about a the same third of the population who does well on the salt restriction does well on the uh, the diuretic. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, I, right now I'm just talking about prevention. Right, right. Uh, methods. And the, uh, then, then the next, um, so I'd say that's the initial treatment, and almost everyone will agree on that, that there should be salt restriction and maybe restrict a lot of other things too, but at least salt. And, mm -hmm. and then... Um, if that doesn't work, then to uh, switch over to the diuretic. Then sort of in the middle uh, treatment, which is the, um, I'd say is fairly controversial, is a whole array of um, drugs and nostrums and substances. The um, Probably they don't work, or probably if they work, they don't work very well. And, the, uh, and so in, in the United States, um, we don't really have much of a middle uh, group of medicines. The... Uh, but the Europeans are um, are fond of, of uh, medicines <laughs> in the middle, and uh, and they uh, they have a medicine called beta histine or, mm. uh, or CERC, and um, and then they have another one called uh, flunarazine. And so the the beta histine is a um, sort of a puzzling medicine that's a uh, doesn't seem to do very much, but uh, still um, about maybe about a third of patients with many years disease will say that they get a is that it's a histamine agonist. So it's the opposite of an antihistamine. It actually increases histamine. And why that would make many years better, I don't know. But, mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, if you take a large group of patients with many years, about a third of them seem to uh, get some benefit from the beta histine. And I have many patients whom, who say, oh, you saved my life, Dr. Hain. You put me on this beta histine, and now I'm fine. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's really the case or not, but... Mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy that they're fine. Right. And the the other group of medicines that are that are used in the middle are also ones that that work on, as migraine prevention medicines. And uh, so, for example, uh, calcium channel blockers uh, in the Europe, uh, there's one called flunarazine. And in this country, the closest one to flunarazine is verapamil, which is a, an L-channel calcium channel blocker. And um, because there's there's a very substantial overlap between migraine and many years disease, uh, often it, uh, you know, one finds as a clinician that the same things that, that are treatments that are used for migraine are somewhat helpful for many years. And uh, verapamil is is the one that I will I am quite fond of. And uh, again, I'm you know I, if I you know they've already failed the salt restriction, then I usually my next step will be to uh, Try this beta histine verapamil combination, and I'd say I pick off of the you know, out of the people left over after the first third did well with the salt restriction. I'll get about another third with the uh, beta histine and the verapamil. 
So that will leave me with just a third left over at the end of people who didn't respond to any medical management. And uh, there, things have gotten so much better recently because of the uh, low-dose genomycin treatment. Mm. And the, uh, the injection of genomycin through the eardrum, usually just a single injection, is uh, 85% effective at stopping the vertigo spells in many ears disease. So after they've passed through these, these two uh, sieves, you know, the salt restriction, which is kind of tough, and then medical management, which takes a few months, if they still have disabling attacks of vertigo, then uh, nearly always you can, you can stop them from having these vertigo spells with a, a low-dose genomycin mm -hmm. treatment, which is uh, one injection and 85% uh, stops the vertigo. And then is that typical of are you actually ablating the labyrinth so they will lose any remaining hearing that they have or is it or may they keep you say eighty five percent effective, is it possible there's some function still remaining that's beneficial? Yes, this this is um this treatment has been evolving uh, over the last uh four decades and uh and sort of what what everyone has learned is that less is more. Mm. <laughs> and and so the, the original idea was that uh, the genomycin treatment, which is, of course, a toxic drug to the inner ear, mm -hmm. was, a, uh, was going to just a way of doing surgery without cutting people and so mm -hmm. that you could uh, totally eliminate inner ear function without ever having to, uh, to cut their skin. And, uh, and it was just seen as, as a knifeless surgery. And um, but what I'll, I'll skip over an immense amount of interesting stuff in the middle. All sorts of mistakes were made. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, Dr. Driscoll at the Mayo Clinic, uh, in, uh, what what was bef be before before then we were we were giving four injections of genomycin, and and really the intent was just to obliterate the the inner ear. And then uh, and the 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 method at that point was to give these injections once a week. But at the Mayo Clinic, it doesn't really work that well to give injections once a week because, you know, you're kind of far away from usually where people are living. Mm -hmm. and so he was having them come back once a month. And he would have them come back once a month, and they came back after a month, and they weren't dizzy anymore. And, and then Dr. Driscoll said, well, gee, if they're not dizzy, why am I giving them a second injection? So he just sent them back home again. And uh, he did that with uh, about 20 patients. And... Uh, reported that uh, you get excellent results. You can stop the vertigo with one injection instead of four injections. And so instead of obliterating the inner ear, you're just kind of beating it up a little bit. You're not mm. knocking it down a little. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I think, and you know, I've, we've done this many, many times here in, in our practice in Chicago, and I think you lose about 20% of your vestibular function if you test people before and after. They uh, It looks as if they lose uh, about 20% of their vestibular function, and they don't lose any hearing at all. Mm. It, is, it is not at all a, uh, a treatment that's toxic to hearing. And so you, it's, it's, um, you end up with this sort of wonderful situation where you can stop their vertigo spells, and, and usually permanently, although not always, and mm -hmm. uh, with no effect on hearing. So it's, it's really a, a pretty nice, nice treatment from the perspective of uh, doing little damage. It doesn't right. do little damage. Right. Okay. Well, what I'd like to move on next are more central causes of vertigo. So um, what might the appropriate medications be for individuals with central disorders? We can go through this 
one by one. I, I'll bring up the, the major ones. You did speak a little bit about migraine already, um, stroke, um, multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury are kind of the ones that come to the forefront of my mind as far as a physical therapist perspective. Um, what are your thoughts about appropriate medications for those um, individuals? Well, the only place where there's been a lot of improvement uh, recently has been in the treatment for migraine. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so uh, migraine is very important for, uh, for central vertigo because it's so common. And 10% uh, of the entire population has migraine. And some groups in the population have a lot more migraine, such as women of childbearing age, where it gets up to around 20 to 25%. And because roughly one in three people with migraine have vertigo, so if we just do the numbers, 10% of the population, a third of them have vertigo, so now we've got 3% of the entire population mm. has central vertigo. Mm -hmm. so, so that way dwarfs any other type of vertigo. It's much more than many areas disease. It's much more than any ear condition you can imagine. The, um, the only thing any even close to migraine are things that aren't really vertigo, but rather low blood pressure or mm -hmm. hypotension, which is a different category altogether. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, so migraine treatment is, is hugely important because uh, there's so many people with, um, with migraine-associated vertigo. And, the, uh, and things have really gotten much better in the last, last 10 years. The, uh, probably the, the beginning of the improvement was with the triptan medications. And so all of a sudden we had these medicines that we could give someone in the waiting room and 10 minutes later their headache and dizziness would be all gone. Mm -hmm. So that was a remarkable improvement. And, um, and I think most of the improvement in recent years has been having to do with preventative medicines, of which um, there are three categories. And, uh, and there's been quite a bit new knowledge about those three categories in the, just in the last five years or so. And so the uh, the antidepressant category, uh, which includes um, the main three, are the uh, uh, venlafaxine, or all, which is also known as Effexor, which is a wonderful migraine prevention medicine. And then there are the uh, the uh, medicines, the tricyclics, such as amitriptyline and uh, nortriptyline. So. Um, What's really happened there is that the uh, amitriptyline and nortriptyline have fallen way down in the uh, hierarchy of which medicine do you want to use because of their side effects. They mm -hmm. Basically, they make people gain weight, and very few women at childbearing age are eager to gain 25 pounds, <laughs> which is the, the <laughs> thing that happens with these. And, and what's really been coming up fast is uh, venlafaxine, which is a different type of um, antidepressant, and, and amazingly effective, just uh, a, a low dose of venlafaxine, which is a starting dose, is 80% uh, effective in, in uh, placebo-controlled uh, double-blind trials for uh, migraine prevention. Mm. So you, you have this really wonderful situation where a, a low-dose, meaning low-side-effect medication, is extremely effective. Mm -hmm. So that's a big change just in the last... Um, I think the first paper about this was in 2004, so this is pretty recent in the knowledge, the last seven years. The, uh, the second group of migraine prevention medicines are the, uh, the seizure medicines, of which uh, you know, topiramate and uh, sodium valparate would be probably the most commonly used ones. Uh, those are going down in, uh, in use right now, mainly because people are appreciating how toxic they are to, um, 
to newborn babies. Mm. In, in other words, the birth birth defect rates are, are very frightening with these drugs. Mm. And the uh, uh, topiramate, uh, 10% of women on topiramate, their babies are born with cleft palates. Mm. So that's that's quite a, a frightening situation. So, and because so much migraine is in women of childbearing age, and you're worried that they might have a baby with with these drugs on on board, they um, and you've got so much better options. Those, those have really gone south rather quickly recently. Mm-hmm. Then the the third group of medicines I mentioned already, verapamil is a good migraine prevention medicine and the calcium channel blockers and the beta blockers, those medicines have kind of remained about steady, and uh, they're still um, quite good ones But the, uh, for migraine prevention, but they have significant side effects, mainly involving lowering blood pressure. And usually in the, the population that has migraine-associated vertigo, which are usually women of childbearing age, your blood pressure is already 100 over 60, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you just don't want to knock it down even more. And so usually they're, they're, they can't really take those medications. Okay. Now, so, so that's sort of – so there's been a lot of movement with migraine in the last decade, and this, even in the last five years. The, uh, there's been very little change in all the other types of uh, central vertigo. For example, if someone has a, uh, a stroke involving their cerebellum and uh, – you can you know that they have a big hole in their cerebellum, and you know that's why they're dizzy. Um, it, it's you're, you're really pretty hard pressed to to come up with a mm-hmm. medication that that can replace the function of their cerebellum. Right. We don't have any medications that cause neurons to grow back. Um, mm-hmm. We really don't have any medicines that do much in in terms of uh, promoting compensation. Mm. And sort of, sort of the general rule, which which goes for or um, all types of central vertigo is that things that put you to sleep reduce compensation, and things that wake you up enhance compensation. So sort of as a general rule, you wouldn't want someone with central vertigo to be on a sedative. Right. So you wouldn't want someone with a stroke to be on meclizine or, um, because that would be putting them to sleep and mm-hmm. making them gain weight. And uh, you'd be kind of unhappy about them taking Valium or Clonazepam or Lorazepam for their, their vertigo, although maybe at, at the end when you tried everything else, you might be stuck with it anyway. Mm-hmm. The uh, medications you would really like them to be on is as few as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you really try to encourage them to, you know, if they're on anything that looks like it might be uh, sedating to uh, cut back on it or uh, or try to get by with a, uh, a version of it that has a shorter time constant so it doesn't last as long in their system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about drugs that, that kind of have dizziness as a side effect, um, especially in the elderly population of patients. Um, we have, if you read the the Walgreens side effect list on just about any medication, you'll find dizziness as a side effect. What are really the most common red flags or the most common combinations of medications that may cause symptoms of dizziness or true vertigo, probably more dizziness? Generally, these medicines don't don't cause vertigo, but rather they uh, mm-hmm. they cause unsteadiness, mm-hmm. and, uh, and sometimes a uh, 
sort of a funny feeling when the people move their head as if things aren't quite catching up mm-hmm. with them. And, and so uh, vertigo would be um, very rare uh, mm-hmm. uh, as a medication side effect, um, more, much more commonly uh, unsteadiness. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as you said, the, um, the, if you look at the PDR, it's, uh, there are 5,000 drugs that are listed as having dizziness as a side effect. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really think that if you gave people sugar pills that, that half the time, well, not half the time, maybe yeah. 5% of people would get dizziness from a sugar pill. And so there, there's the uh, there's a uh, sort of a baseline that you know, dizziness is a common human condition, and uh, and people uh, frequently seem to endorse that as a uh, something that happens whenever they take a pill. Hmm. And so we have this this baseline of about five to seven percent of a placebo induced uh, dizziness. And then so you really when you look at medications, then you have to say, well, is it even is it more than five to seven percent? Is it hmm. really a significant source of dizziness? And there are many medicines that that are uh, are problematic in that regard. The uh, one one obvious group are the blood pressure medications, mm-hmm. and because people take blood pressure medicines, their blood pressure drops too low, and then they they get faint when they stand up, and um, and so they they call and say that they're dizzy. Yeah, and so uh, and and the, some of the blood pressure medications are also uh, vasodilators, and so they interact with migraine. Mm. So there's a, a second mechanism for uh, blood pressure medications. Um, uh, almost everyone gets uh, headaches, for example, from uh, nitroglycerin, which is um, you know a nitrate that's mm-hmm. a vasodilator. Uh, a, a second uh, group of medications that that commonly, uh, and this is all sort of common sense, but the ones that get into your brain are the ones that are more likely to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so. Uh, so uh, anti-psychiatric uh, type medications are commonly uh, sources of dizziness, and, mm-hmm. and also antidepressants and seizure medications. And so uh, many of the uh, medicines that are just commonly used for uh, uh, for depression, in uh, although they may not make people um, seriously ill, they may be associated with this dizziness side effect. Mm-hmm. Or uh, people who take uh, medicines such as um, Carbamazepine, which is a uh, seizure medicine, they very frequently become dizzy on carbamazepine. The um, uh, another common, commonly prescribed medication is uh, are medications that, that improve prostate function, and so the alpha alpha blockers uh, cause orthostatic hypotension, and they have a frighteningly high incidence of uh, of dizziness in the in the order of uh, around 30 percent. Medication that really makes me worry when I have a patient come in is, is when someone is on amiodarone. Amiodarone mm. is a uh, is a uh, drug that's used to uh, keep people uh, who have atrial fibrillation from having atrial fibrillation, and it, it's a very effective cardiac drug. But it just has a uh, long list of central nervous system side effects, and the which gradually accumulate over time. So people are on amiodarone, and initially they feel pretty good. They don't have their atrial fib anymore. But then over time they develop a peripheral neuropathy, and then they start to become unsteady, and mm-hmm. and then it's time to get them off their amiodarone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of um, alluding to the, kind of the last topic that I wanted to discuss just real briefly are medications that are used for some other medical condition that are ototoxic. The side effect is ototoxic. So you mentioned genomycin, you know, being used. It could be used as 
to treat a life-threatening um, infection, for instance, chemotherapy agents that have an ototoxic side effect. If you could just, um, you know, give a give us a, a couple of quick examples of those most common ototoxic medications and how much they would ever clear the system, or if once they get to a critical dose, they will essentially ablate or disrupt vestibular function never to recover? Um, yes, these are very big problems. And mm -hmm. the, um, so the main group uh, that, that's the, the huge problem are the uh, aminoglycoside medications of which uh, genomycin and tobramycin are the main problematic members. Uh, genomycin is the much bigger problem. and. Uh, so genomycin is a, an aminoglycoside, a member of a whole family of medicines that are called aminoglycosides, and all of the aminoglycosides, every single one of them, are ototoxic. Mm -hmm. And sort of curiously, some of them are mostly hearing toxic, and some of them are mostly vestibulotoxic. Mm. So for example, neomycin is almost a pure hearing toxin. It doesn't do much at all to the vestibular system, but uh, terrible for hearing. But mm. on the other hand, genomycin is a pure, almost pure vestibulotoxin. And so what that means then is that someone who is on genomycin who um, perhaps has a very serious infection, they have a heart valve infection or a, a bone infection or a, a very serious kidney infection, they're put on the, the genomycin and it often does a really good job of killing the uh, bacteria because these are quite powerful antibiotics, but it, um, it accumulates in the inner ear. And so every day when the genomycin is given, uh, it comes and goes in the blood very quickly because it has a two-hour half-life. But in the ear, it, it stays for, for months. Mm. So every time you give more genomycin, some more sticks to the ear. And so after a couple of weeks, it usually takes at least a week of genomycin, then there's enough drug that's accumulated in the inner ear that it starts to do damage. And because genomycin is a pure vestibular toxin, it starts to do vestibular damage. So here you are, you're lying in bed, you're getting this this drug every day that's being injected, and your ear is gradually being pared away by, mm -hmm. by the genomycin. You may not even realize it. And then uh, then after a month goes by and the drug is stopped, and uh, then you try to get up and walk around and use your hip or use your heart again, then you realize, boy, I sure am unsteady. I wonder why uh, I'm so unsteady. Mm. And... Uh, and unfortunately happens uh, about 5% of the time is that the, and these people have been on long courses of genomycin is that their ear has been damaged during the course of antibiotic and uh, often it, uh, it's gone down to 10% or 25% or of what they normally should have and that is not enough for them to uh, use their vestibular ocular reflex and see when their head is in motion mm -hmm. so they develop oscillopsia. So, so genomycin is the uh, the biggest problem, and uh, and uh, one that's coming up more recently is um, tobramycin, which is uh, used for cystic fibrosis. So tobramycin is really almost only confined to the cystic fibrosis population, but the story is very similar: is that people are getting intravenous tobramycin for some terrible infection, and then gradually, because they get multiple courses of this drug over years, they pair away their inner ear function mm. and. Sometimes they lose their hearing as a result of these um, ototoxic medicines. 
Now, unfortunately, there is no, um, in humans, there is no regeneration of the inner ear. And mm -hmm. so once your hair cells are dead in the ear, and these are hair cell toxins, they're dead forever. Mm -hmm. And so so uh, this is it's really a situation where um, the people's lives are saved by the, the drugs, but their, uh, their quality of life can be very different because they're unable to uh, balance themselves and, and they can't see very well when their head is in motion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. so, so as far as prognosis, the, um, you know, acutely people are, are usually quite bad shape after they've had a, um, let's say, a, a month course of genomycin and they, they've had the ototoxicity. And so they will usually uh, be very, very unsteady, and, and they won't drive, and they will um, really uh, have terrible balance and uh, have oscillopsy. And, and, and this all gradually improves, but it doesn't ever get back to normal. And so uh, um, in the first year, usually people have a very substantial recovery. and uh, they Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, um, I think we're out of time. Um, I would like to thank you, Dr. Hain, for joining us today for this podcast. It was a pleasure having you. And you. on behalf of the Vestibular Special Interest Group, um, I thank our listeners for for tuning in today. And I will let you know that next month's topic for January 2012 will be on visual vertigo. So we hope to have you back again. And thank you again, Dr. Hain. Thank you. Bye-bye.